It's uh, lovely to have Andy Jack back in town. And uh, we continue through our series of, of Jeremiah. Andy, a warm welcome. Thank you. Really to share in Ian and Judy's golden wedding celebration. So two golden weddings this weekend. A wonderful thing. It's been lovely to be down south. It's been a bonus to have the warm weather. An absolute bonus hearing the music this morning. I could have heard, listened for a lot longer. So welcome again. If you have a Bible there, let's turn to the Bible, which we believe is God's words to us. And we're turning to Jeremiah chapter 30 in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 30, continuing your series. Just going to read a few verses at this point from this chapter as God speaks to his people a long, long time ago. Let's start at verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring back my people Israel and Judah from captivity and restore them to the land I gave to their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. Let's drop down to verse 12. This is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. All your allies have forgotten you, they care nothing for you. I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel, because your guilt is so great and your sins so many. Why do you cry out over your wound, your pain that has no cure? Because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done these things to you. But all who devour you will be devoured, all your enemies will go into exile, those who plunder you will be plundered, All who make spoil of you, I will despoil. But I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord. We're going to pause there for now. There's an image. Is that better? I'm a visitor now. (laughs) Should be an image coming on the screen um, behind me. If you're a football fan, a follower of football, you will recognize this stadium straight away. It is the New Camp Stadium, the home of Barcelona Football Club, one of the biggest football clubs in the world, one of the most successful football teams in the world. What is interesting about the the, the location of Barcelona Stadium is that on one side, on the left-hand side, you'll see a round building there. That is a large maternity hospital. On the other side of the stadium, not in this picture, unfortunately, is a large cemetery. Interesting. One of the books written about this football club picks up this point, and it says this.
Can we go backwards? There we go. It says this, life and death, and between the two, football. Now, I don't know what you make of that, but the message is pretty clear, isn't it? From the cradle unto the grave, the most important thing, the thing that matters more than all is, is football, and especially Barcelona Football Club. And it's like a religion in Catalonia, Barcelona is. But I wonder this morning, if we had that slogan in front of us, how would we complete it? Life and death... And between the two, what is the most important thing for you, I wonder, between those two realities? What is it all about, really? And where does God feature? Because the Bible is so clear that there is nothing more important, nothing more fundamental in our lives than our relationship with the God who made us, the God who loves us, and entering the kingdom of God. And that really, those issues really are the heart of our passage this morning, Jeremiah chapter 30. Just to set the scene for us, it's the end of the 6th century BC. It's worth pausing there just to point out this is history, what we're reading, what we're talking about this morning. These things really happened 6th century BC. And God's prophet, God's spokesman, Jeremiah, is appealing to the people of Judah. He's appealing to them to put God back in his rightful place in their lives. Because for many years now, the people have turned their backs on God. They've been living their lives without any reference to God. They've been giving their worship, their devotion, which should belong to God, to all kinds of other so-called gods. And Jeremiah comes to the people and he warns them. He comes with a message from God and the message is simple. God is angry with them. He's rightly angry and he's coming in judgment. And that has been Jeremiah's message for the first 24 chapters or so of this book. It's quite heavy going. Now, how did the people respond? I think this image sums it up for me. Really, they didn't listen. They didn't think Jeremiah was serious. They didn't think God was really serious. So the people didn't turn back to God. (laughs) I thought about this yesterday, and you know, that was me as a teenager. I'd heard lots about God, but I didn't think he was serious. Not serious enough to do anything about it. Well, that was Jeremiah's message for the first 24 chapters. And then from chapter 25 and following, God sends Jeremiah again to announce to the people, well, now it's happening. The armies of Babylon the ruling power of the day, are now on their way from the north and they're coming to conquer Judah, destroy Jerusalem and take the people away into captivity unless the people turn back to God. And then we come to our chapter this morning, chapter 30. 
And at chapter 30, the Babylonian armies have arrived. Their war machine has been camped outside Jerusalem for maybe 18 months or so. And one or two waves of people have been taken away into exile, separated from loved ones. Can you imagine the distress of those days? Verses 5, 6, 7 of our passage sum it up for us. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, every face turned deathly pale? It's pretty graphic, isn't it? People crying out in fear, faces turning white, and warriors so scared they have their hands on their stomach, and those people looking at them will think, They're in the last stages of labor, screaming out for gas and air, as it were, about to have a baby. The pain is so intense, desperate times, as God's judgment comes. Now, the final destruction was yet to take place, but things are happening just as Jeremiah said they would. And I find that very sobering. The people hadn't listened. Why? They didn't think God was being serious. And now it's happening. God was serious. And it raises the question, doesn't it? What about us? How do we respond when we read verse 1 that this is the word that came to Jeremiah from, from who? From the Lord. This is a message from God himself. And we read that phrase about ten times in this chapter. The message from God. The message from God. We really need to listen this morning. This is so serious. It's a strong message. But at the same time, we're going to see some remarkable promises of hope, of life, of a future, of restoration in this chapter. So look at verse 3 just for a moment. A change of tone, verse 3, isn't it? The days are coming when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave to their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. Incredible promise of hope. And that's why these chapters, Jeremiah 30 to 33, are sometimes called the book of hope or the book of consolation. So as we think more about our passage this morning, there are two sides to it. It's not too complicated, even though it's written a long time ago. The first part is this strong warning of judgment. It's coming. And the second part, a wonderful promise of hope, of restoration. And as we look at each part this morning, what we're going to discover is that this message from God is just as relevant to you and to me, whatever age we are, as it was to these people two and a half thousand years ago. Part one then. A warning of judgment. 
And the message really is this, that, that our problem, our predicament is more serious than we ever imagined it was. You see, we might be tempted to think that this story of Judah is going to be like one of those war stories where suddenly the allies come riding over the crest of the hill at the last moment and they bring victory. But that's not, that's not how it is. In verses 12 and 13, look at them. Jeremiah describes their condition. He uses medical terms. I wonder what you think of his bedside manner. Verse 12 and 13, this is what the Lord says, your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. Wow, four times he says it, and he basically says, yours is a hopeless case. There's no medicine for what you've got, for your problem, for your condition. Verse 15, he repeats it. Why do you cry out over your wound? Your pain has no cure. This is terminal. Rachel and I enjoy watching hospital dramas, medical dramas. Maybe you do as well. There's no shortage of them, is there? Um... But they all rely on the same formula pretty much to get us feeling really nervous. So suddenly a patient is rushed from an ambulance into the hospital. There's a nasty, nasty wound. Then the medical teams all come racing, yelling out instructions for complicated medications. But there's no time. So suddenly out comes the knife in the corridor and it's all happening. Very dramatic, very scary. But there is something more scary than that. And that's the moment when the doctors stop what they're doing and they put down their instruments and the nurses quietly leave to go to other patients. And the doctor turns to the patient and to the relatives and says something like, I'm so sorry, there is nothing more we can do. And that's the predicament facing these people, according to Jeremiah. Well, if that's their prognosis, what is the diagnosis? What is this disease, this problem, which has put these people on their deathbed, spiritually speaking? And the answer is given to us very clearly in verse 15. Look at verse 15. This pain that has no cure... Why is it there? Because of your great guilt and many sins. That's why I'm doing this to you, God says, because of your great guilt and your many sins. Basically, these people have lived in God's world ignoring God. Really, that is the essence, the heart of sin. Living in God's world, but ignoring God. They were chasing after other gods. We do the same. We look to whatever it is to give us satisfaction, to give us peace, to give us hope for the future. And God says, that can't be. I'm angry when the people I've made do that. And so my judgment 
my right judgment is coming. Just look down to the last verse of the chapter. You see, God can't ignore our rebellion. Last verse of the chapter says that the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. What is that saying? It's saying God must get angry at our sin and our rebellion. He cannot pretend it doesn't matter because it does matter and it is serious. When I stop to think about it for a few minutes, it's an outrageous thing to live in God's world, the world that he has made. He gives me gifts every single day to enjoy. Every breath I breathe is from him. And to live in his world and just pay no attention to him, not to live gratefully to him. It's an outrageous thing. And God is rightly angry. And this passage gets very personal because we suffer from the same sickness, the same problem spiritually that these people had. And what's the message this morning? The message is we will not recover on our own. We we can try, and we do try, maybe better education, tougher penalties, self-help techniques, shift the blame, someone else really is responsible Just go into denial. Try to convince yourself there's no such thing as right and wrong. All kinds of strategies, but they will not help us. They will not heal us. The message is, our sin, our guilt, our problem before God, it is incurable. (laughs) Michael Kalashnikov, that name will ring a bell, Michael Kalashnikov was a designer of the AK-47 rifle, and just a few years ago he died, aged 93. And just before his death, he wrote a letter to the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. This is what it said. The pain in my soul is unbearable, and there is one matter I cannot resolve... The longer I live, the more this question drills into my brain. Do I carry guilt for what I've done? And the answer, the answer is yes. But let's not focus on Michael Klashnikov for too long. Because it's not just a designer of assault rifles that carry guilt. It's all of us. This is a universal experience. We are guilty objectively, before our creator. And he is rightly angry with us. And the question this morning is simple. Have we faced up to that reality? As a teenager, I heard about this. I did not face up to it. Can we acknowledge this morning that this is our problem? That there's no hope for us if we don't acknowledge this and face up to it. That we need to come clean before God and admit our guilt is great and our sins are many before God can help us and heal us. Incredible thing is that help is available, that healing is available. They think it's all over in Jeremiah 30, but it doesn't have to be. 
Because at the heart of our passage is a wonderful promise. Let's catch up a minute. A wonderful promise of hope. And if the problem was more serious than we ever imagined, this promise is more wonderful than you ever imagined. Firstly, it's a promise of restoration back to the land. Remember, they're being carted away from their land. It was desperate. We've just read the summary of what God says he will do there in verse 3. Verse 3, I will bring my people back. I will restore them to the land. Look look down at verse 8. Verse 8, I will break the yoke, the yoke of slavery off their necks. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Verse 10, so do not fear. Verse 11, I am with you and will save you. I'm going to bring you back, God says. And when you come back, what's going to happen? Verse 18, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tent and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins. So prosperity is going to come again to the people. Verse 19, now there's songs of thanksgiving, the sound of rejoicing. What a contrast to those warriors whose faces were turning pale and the cries of anguish. Amazing. Wouldn't it be incredible to hear those promises of God to restore you, to bring you back to your land? It's beautiful, it's precious, but there is a more pressing need. Not just to be restored back to their land, they need to be restored back to their God. Their guilt is great, remember. Their sins are many. If they are just restored to the land and not restored back to God, then their return to the land is not going to last very long. There will be another cycle of rebellion, forgetting about God, and then God's destruction coming. But wonderfully, God is promising to bring them back to the land and he's promising to restore them to him. Verse 17 captures it for us. Look at verse 17. God says these precious words. But I will restore you to health and heal your wounds. Isn't that beautiful? Might sound like God is contradicting himself because he's just said, your problem, your wound is incurable. It cannot be cured. And now verse 17, I will cure you. The point is quite a simple one. I think God is saying, what we cannot do, God can do. God is promising to do the impossible for his people. He's promising to put right what cannot be put right humanly, to heal that which is beyond healing, that guilt which is great, our sins which are so many. And immediately that raises the question, doesn't it? How on earth can God do that? Remember verse 24, that God must get angry. His judgment must be expressed. He can't ignore our rebellion. How can he heal us and restore us? 
You have to read on through the rest of the Bible. And, it, and it's an extraordinary story. And the rest of the Bible shows there's only one way for our guilt to be dealt with, for our sin to be fully forgiven. And it took the Son of God, Jesus, to come from heaven to earth. It took him to die on a cross in our place. And as you imagine Jesus hanging there on that cross, what was happening? Well, he was taking verse 24. He was taking the full force of God's anger on himself for your sin and guilt and for mine. Extraordinary thing. Now, can you see what that means? If Jesus has taken the force of God's anger on himself for our sin, it means that God's anger can now be turned away from me and away from you if we turn back to him. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to the cross, which is why at the end of our chapter, the last statement, what does it say? In days to come, you will understand this. They couldn't understand how it could all happen, not in Jeremiah's day, but one day after Jesus died on that cross, they would understand how we could be restored to God. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's wonderful promise of hope, all through Jesus Christ. And even though the people couldn't understand it all in Jeremiah's time, he gives some clues here. He gives us some signposts pointing us forward through history to Jesus, the one who would come to heal us and rescue us. So very briefly in the time we have remaining, let me point out these clues. Firstly, the king. Look at verse 9. God says, When they come back, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, that's a bit confusing because David had been king long, long before. What's God saying? God is saying, I'm going to raise up another king for you like David, descended from David, the one that's been promised, the Messiah, the chosen, anointed king. Now, interestingly, this promise was not fulfilled after the people came back from exile. The city was rebuilt, but no king was put back on the throne. And the promise wasn't fulfilled until Jesus came, the son of David. And that's why you have those long lists of names in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those genealogies. Because they had to show that Jesus, actually he descended from David. He is the promised king. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all about him. Okay, well, well, why did he come? Let's zoom in a bit further. Verse 21 gives us the next clue. Verse 21. Speaking of this king, it says, verse 21, their leader will be one of their own. He'll come from his own people. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near and he will come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? Now that last 
that last phrase, who is he who will devote himself to be close to me, more literally it should read, who would dare draw close to me? What an interesting question. Who could think of coming close to the God of the universe, the holy, pure, clean God? You can't. And right through the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, it's so, so clear that unclean, guilty people cannot approach a clean, holy God. It would mean death if you tried. But look at verse 21 again. This king whom God would send, he can draw near to God. He would draw near to God and come close. Who could come closer to God than the Son of God, the one who's been in intimate relationship since eternity past. No one can come closer. This is pointing to Jesus. And here's the wonderful news. Not only did Jesus come close to God the Father, he is able to bring us near, to bring us close to God. The other evening, I was reading uh, in the New Testament with my little boy, Reuben. He's seven years old. We've been reading through the Gospel of Mark night by night. We're getting there. And we got to that bit where Jesus died. He breathed his last breath on the cross. And we talked about what happened that very moment Jesus died, that across the city in the temple, there was this curtain which tore from top to bottom. It tore in two. And that curtain was there as a barrier between sinful, guilty humanity and the holy God. But the moment Jesus died, that barrier was removed. Because Jesus died in our place. We can now draw near. We can now come close with confidence. It's an extraordinary privilege. I did challenge myself this week as to how much I appreciate that privilege, how much I do draw near. When did you last draw near to God? It's a good question to ask. Why do we tend to stay so distant when Jesus gave everything to enable us to come close? Incredible promises of hope. A king's going to come, King Jesus. He will bring us near to God. And finally, finally, he will make us his people. Look at verse 22. So, you will be my people, and I will be your God. If you've been reading the Bible from the beginning this morning, you got up very early, and you got to Jeremiah chapter 30 you'll suddenly realize I keep bumping into this phrase, this promise God makes to his people. You will be my people and I will be your God. This is what the king, this is what Jesus will make possible. It's an extraordinary promise. This is what we were made for. This promise, verse 22, contains everything you have ever longed for, anything you could ever need or desire in the whole universe is wrapped up in this one promise 
I will be your God. You will be my people. You can know me and enjoy me. And this promise has the simplicity, the beauty of a marriage promise. Now, there's marriage vows a husband and a wife make to each other. Here is God committing himself to be utterly faithful to his people. You belong to me, he says. I now belong to you. And that's the way it can be, will be forever. I'll never let you go once you are my people. What an incredible promise. Especially having seen the warning this morning, what we deserve. For me, a man called John Newton sums up this chapter really well in a statement he made near the end of his life. You may know his story, you may not. John Newton lived back in the 18th century. He'd been a captain of a slave ship. He had trafficked thousands of men and women and children from Africa across the Atlantic. And he lived a life so depraved that even his rough shipmates found it shocking. But near the end of his life, after experiencing these promises, experiencing the rescue that Jesus came to bring, this is what John Newton said. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. Doesn't that sum up our chapter this morning? I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great saviour. And some of us this morning may well feel, do you know what, it's all over between me and God. My situation is hopeless. Maybe because of what you've done, maybe because of how long you've been away from God, drifting away from him. I think all of us at some point have reached that point of, surely God would not have me back again. I hope we've seen this morning that is just not true. Yes, our rebellion is serious. It is more serious than we ever imagined, and it deserves God's punishment. But God's promise is incredible. He promises a new start. He could draw us near to himself and make you and me his people. His arms are open this morning. His arms are always open to welcome us That's it. Put one more slide. Let's come back to that statement we started with. Life and death and between the two. What's it all about? Really? Jeremiah has shown us this morning. Be warned. Your problem is more serious than you ever imagined. But be encouraged, be deeply encouraged because God's promise is more wonderful than you ever imagined. Your guilt can be forgiven, whatever it is. You can draw near to God. You can be part of his people enjoying relationship 
with him. You just need to do two things. Number one, you simply need to agree with God's diagnosis that our guilt is great, that our sins are many. Will you agree with that this morning? And secondly, we just need to put our trust, our confidence in God's solution in the one he sent to rescue us, the Lord Jesus. And once we've understood this, grace, where we started this morning, we need to keep coming back to it again and again and again because this last week there's been times when I have forgotten the God who made me, the God who has rescued me. The same John Newton wrote the words we sang earlier, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's an incredible start to a song, so famous, isn't it? But the song doesn't begin with the words, ordinary grace, how nice the sound that came along and helped out a pretty decent chap like me. It's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a what? That saved a wretch like me. Because that's the reality. And that is the only dynamic that can transform my heart and your heart into people who will love this God and commit ourselves to him and serve him wholeheartedly, the one who's given everything for us. Should we bow our heads? Let's bow our heads, have a moment of silence. Just to think about that question. Life and death and between the two. Will you agree with God's assessment of your life? Will you turn and trust his solution, the Lord Jesus? Lord God, we do thank you for your amazing grace to us. To people who deserve nothing, you have given everything and you promise everything. Lord, please humble us this morning. Please help us to listen to what you're saying. Please help us to take it seriously. Help us to agree with the problem you're pointing out in our hearts. Help us to turn to Jesus and trust him as our rescuer. Lord, help us to live gratefully this week. Help us to live wholeheartedly as we think of all that you have given, all that you have done, all that you've made possible for us. Lord, we worship you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.